0: Welcome to our podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swami are exposing mold. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. David Ross. Dr. Ross, in 2001, founded the Virginia Institute of Neuropsychiatry, and he's also board certified in three areas, general psychiatry, neuropsychiatry, and brain injury medicine. Dr. Ross and his colleagues, pioneered application of neuroquant in patients with traumatic brain injury. He invented a method for estimating brain volume the moment before injury to improve understanding of effects of brain injury on brain volume. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, The Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration the first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. Dr. Ross, thank you so much for joining
1: us. Keeley, thank you and, and everybody for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. And congratulations to you all on your good work with the Exposing Mold podcast and getting the word out to people who are dealing with this uh, illness, which can be terrible at times. And yeah. so I wanted to talk with you all day about what I do in this area as a neuropsychiatrist and uh, with brain volume measurement. So I thought I'd show a few slides And we'll talk a little bit about the neuropsychiatry of mold related illness, then about how we measure brain volume with modern software techniques, NeuroQuant and NeuroGage, and then we'll talk about how to apply the MRI brain volume measurement techniques to patients with mold related illness. Keely, as you mentioned, a lot of people aren't very familiar with neuropsychiatry, et cetera. So I started out as a psychiatrist, and I was always most interested in the area between neurology and psychiatry, which is called neuropsychiatry, which is now a a formal subspecialty area. And then later in my career, I also studied and worked a lot with patients who have various types of acquired brain injury, including traumatic brain injury. And you can think of mold, you can think of it as an acquired brain injury or toxic brain injury. And so the area I work the most in is the overlap of these areas right in here, mostly with traumatic brain injury, chronic mild outpatients with traumatic brain injury, but also with patient with mold related illness, other types of brain injury or nurse psychiatric disorders. Now, you know, you all might know, and a lot of your listeners may know uh, about the symptoms of mold related illness and what causes it. So I'm just gonna very briefly say, and and actually let me add one thing as we go into this. I'm not what I would call a mold doctor. So I don't primarily diagnose mold related illness. I rely on my colleagues who are expert in that to do the, the primary diagnosis. And then i add with the neuropsychiatric aspect or the brain volume measurement part but i do know a fair amount about it having worked with a lot of these patients and their doctors and i know that it's caused by exposure to damp moldy indoor environments that can give you a lot of medical symptoms and a lot of different organ systems of the body there's immune system dysfunction respiratory symptoms are very common It can also affect neurological systems, including the brain, as well as other organ systems. In the brain, that is, neuropsychiatric symptoms include a a wide variety of different kinds of cognitive impairment, like memory and concentration problems, fatigue and sleep problems, impaired balance or coordination, pain, and other neuropsychiatric symptoms. Now, uh, we know that mold-related illness causes different kinds of brain imaging abnormalities, both functional, which means that imaging that shows the functional activity of the brain, as well as structural, like MRI or CT scans. And these have shown problems with blood flow in the brain of patients with mold-related illness and abnormal volume of multiple brain regions. And this is what we're gonna focus on mostly today. So this is magnetic resonance imaging or MRI, and this is what a scanner looks like. A lot of you may have had scans like this for one reason or another, Uh, but you lie on a table and you, you go back inside the scanner, For brain MRI, of course, your head and brain have to be inside there. And then this is an artist's picture of a cross-section. We call this axial cross-section of the head and brain. But this is what it looks like on an MRI image. We call it grayscale because it's colored different shades of gray. And we'll look at more uh, MRI images in a minute. More modern technique is to measure MRI brain volume. And the one we use a lot, well, one of the two we use a lot, is called NeuroQuant, which is uh, amazing technology. It's FDA-cleared as of 2006 to measure MRI brain volume in human subjects, and it's fully computer-automated, which makes it very reliable. And it uses some uh, high-powered rocket science technology that's been developed over really decades, and specifically with over $100 million in funding from the National Institute of Health, and that was up through about 2005, and since then they've developed it further with private capital since the company went private. And it takes the grayscale MRI images like this. And then it does basic analyses removes the surface, the skull and the meninges, which is the coverings around the brain, uh, to look inside the brain. It also uh, uses a method called inflation, which is a mathematical method that brings all the sulci from deep in their little grooves up toward the surface to make things easier to identify. And then it maps the person's brain to uh, a common... Space like this. so these are different individuals, each with a little bit different brain, but they get mapped onto a common space, which is a, a type of brain atlas called currently called a dynamic atlas. And then the process is reverse engineered so that each person's brain comes out with about 130 brain regions or subregions measured, the volumes measured. And the volume just means how big is it? and is it normal size, too big or too small? It really boils down to that. So extremely sophisticated software that does it. what is ultimately a very simple thing. It's a fancy brain ruler, essentially. And it can take a grayscale MRI like this, and this is the person's left side of their head and the right side. And then um, it turns it into one that looks like this, which colors the different brain regions, different colors. And uh, it will measure the volume of all these different regions, as well as multiple cortical gray matter regions, which are the red colored regions. We send the images to the computer server and in about 10 minutes, it gives us back the analyses with the colored brain images and the the reports that we'll see in a minute. Very fast, which makes it practical and affordable. Unlike, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, you basically couldn't do this in the clinic. And this will give you an idea of the many different regions that NeuroQuant measures on the surface of the brain. This is the left lateral surface. This is the medial surface. And if I show you my uh, skull and brain model here, and it's a little easier to see in three dimensions. So if I take the brain out there, and if I hold it like this, actually, let me do it like this. This is the left side of the brain, lateral left side of the brain. And if I pull it apart in the middle, this is what's called the medial surface of the brain. And you're looking there at the left the medial surface of the left hemisphere of the brain. So we get a very rich uh, analysis of brain regions and subregions deeper in the brain. This is a picture of an actual brain postmortem, and then a p- picture of functional maps of the brain. And the different colors tell you different types of activity. The blue regions are hardwired, like the visual region, hardwired to visual space, and the motor region hardwired to what part of your body you're going to move, etc but yellow or less hard wire and the pink are the most abstract, the parts of the brain that do the most abstract types of thinking and integration of all the other sensory and motor aspects of your brain. This is important for what we do because we can take these regions that are identified by NeuroQuant, and then we sometimes can associate them with certain symptoms the patient has, not always, but often, which would prov- provide confirmatory evidence that what if we find volume abnormalities, that they're important for that patient. This is an example of our current favorite type of neuroquant report. There are several types. This one's called the triage brain atrophy report. And it's our favorite because it has the most brain regions. There's about 130 brain regions here by the time you get through all these regions and then the left side, the right side, and the, the total, which is left plus right. And the regions colored blue are abnormally large. And this patient had a lot of abnormal enlargement. The regions colored red are abnormally small, and he only had a couple of those. We're gonna look at a patient example who had mold-related illness, and I'll I'll get a little bit more into the details of this report. But these analyses are adjusted for um, intracranial volume, which is skull size, because people who are bigger have bigger heads and bigger skulls, and that's not really that important or interesting for what we're doing. What is important is how big is your brain relative to your skull size. NeuroQuant also adjusts for age because your brain volume changes as you get older. When you get very old, it starts shrinking, sadly. And it adjusts for sex. And the other type of software we'll talk about is NeuroGage, which we developed here over the years. NeuroGage is based on NeuroQuant. And whereas NeuroQuant measures the brain volume, NeuroGage extends the utility of NeuroQuant in a few ways. And these are the ways NeuroGage extends the utility of NeuroQuant. One is we measure asymmetry. How big is one brain region compared to its contralateral counterpart? And we measure longitudinal change over time. And we'll talk about these today a little bit. This is a a patient with, um, by the way, I should have mentioned, this patient had chronic mild traumatic brain injury, but the the pattern happens to look a fair amount like the mold pattern, except we don't see as much cerebral white matter atrophy. We usually don't see that with mold. Uh, We do see that a fair amount with traumatic brain injury. But interestingly, and it was somewhat surprising to me at first, a lot of this enlargement we see with both chronic TBI and chronic mold, which you don't see a lot of other than acquired brain injury. We'll see it with hypoxic brain injury. But other things, you don't see a lot of abnormal enlargement with dementia, Alzheimer's disease, chronic alcoholism, a whole lot of other things. They generally make your brain shrink. These disorders, including mold, are a little bit different that way. This patient also happened to be a chronic mild TBI, but she had very good asymmetry that clearly showed up. And you can think of this as the patient facing us, and that'd be her left ear and her right ear. And you can glance at this and see that the left lateral ventricle here is a lot bigger than the right. The ventricle is filled with cerebrospinal fluid. It's deep in the brain. Here it is in three dimensions. It's a cavity or a hole deep in the brain filled with cerebrospinal fluid. Its purpose is to take up extra space in the brain where there is no brain tissue. So if your brain tissue shrinks for some reason, your ventricles will get bigger to take up the extra space because something has to take up the extra space. It's not gonna be air, it's not gonna be a vacuum. It's gonna be ventricles filled with cerebrospinal fluid basically. And then when we look at the uh, neuroquantid version of this, again, you see the ventricles now colored purple They appear to have abnormal asymmetry, and the question is, is it truly abnormal? But you can also, you may see here now, it's easier to see, there's a gold-colored structure here, much bigger on the right than left. In fact, it's so small on the left, you can barely see traces of it here. Uh, That happens to be called the hippocampus. It's very important for short-term memory uh, and other aspects of memory. Interestingly, the radiologists who read this MRI, there are actually two or three that read her MRIs over about a year or two period none of them said there was abnormal asymmetry, which is interesting. It obviously looks asymmetric. The question is, is it really abnormally asymmetric? To, to answer that question, you need to measure a bunch of normal control subjects and then find the average, let's say, ventricular asymmetry. What's the average? And then you need to find the standard deviation of that asymmetry for the lateral ventricle. Remember your bell curve, and how wide or fat your bell curve is that will give you your standard deviation and then you can compare your patient's asymmetry to the normal control groups to see if it falls above the 95th normative percentile in which case it would be abnormally large asymmetry or below the 95th percentile in case it would be abnormal asymmetry in the opposite direction that is left bigger than right or right bigger than left and that's what we do with nurgage a couple papers we did few years ago called our man versus machine papers. This happened to use uh, chronic mild TBI patients because those are the main types of patients we have to study. But I can tell you based on my experience with many other kinds of patients who have subtle brain volume abnormalities, including patients with mold related illness, the same principles apply. And that is that NeuroQuant and NeuroGage would found that volume abnormalities in 96% of the patients But radiologists looking at the exact same MRIs said there were volume abnormalities only 13% of the time, a highly statistically significant difference. This is not a criticism of my radiology colleagues. This is just the limitation of the human brain and visual system for seeing volume abnormalities. If the volume abnormalities are big, like 20% bigger than normal, that's around the threshold for when you start to see the volume abnormalities. But when they're smaller, it's hard to impossible to see. You need to measure them. Just like just about everything we else, else we do in medicine and science, it's better to measure things for a lot of different reasons. And that's true, certainly true with brain volume. So what do we find in patients with mold-related illness? We're here, these are two studies from uh, Dr. Shoemaker and Dr. McMahon and their, their group. And they found in patients with mold-related illness, there were multiple regions of abnormal enlargement including uh, forebrain parenchyma, which is basically the cerebrum. It's the big part of the brain that you might mainly think of when you think of the brain. It does not include the the brain stem or the cerebellum. This this part down here, which is a much smaller part, doesn't include that. Cerebral cortical gray matter, which is all of the surface regions of the brain here and, and on the medial surface as well. That's the cortical gray matter. Also large. All of these are large. None were small cerebellum, we'll talk about it in our patient example today. It's a small part of the brain, relatively small, in the lower back part of the brain. Small, but very important for coordinating movement and to some extent thought and emotion. Uh, The pallidus, which is a small nucleus uh, deep inside the brain, it's in here. I'd have to stick that in about another centimeter to get deep in the brain to see the pallidum. We'll look at cross sections of that. And then amygdala and hippocampus, they're next to each other and they're also kind of deepen the brain down in, down in here, another half centimeter in, and we'll look at cross sections of those structures. So that's kind of our the pattern we expect based on the published literature. And so now we'll talk about our patient example. This patient is someone you all know. This is Shelly Federico, and she gave me permission to use her name and to talk about her symptoms and her brain volume findings, which is very gracious of her, and I appreciate her doing that. Also, just want to say that She's been a grassroots leader and supporter of arguing and supporting people with mold-related illness, and I have a lot of uh, respect for her. And so once again, she comes forth as a leader to let us look at her example that might you know, help educate or, or maybe inspire some other patients dealing with this. Well, she was my patient around 2012, 2013, and 36 years old at the time. She had mold-related illness diagnosed by um, The mold doctor and then we did the neuropsychiatric evaluation and found she had a lot of typical symptoms of mold uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms and other things that often go along with it including post-traumatic stress disorder because it's such a terribly stressful experience headaches pain gastrointestinal symptoms respiratory symptoms and some other somatic medical symptoms so here we've got here we've got shelley's neuroquant analyses and reports. Here we go, so this was her MRI in November 2012, and I'll show you what we do when we analyze these. You can see the front of her face, back of her head. Reslice slice those in three planes of section using uh, OSIRIC software. These are synced so that when I move one, these two lines here cor- correspond to the other planes of section. Um, and we go through here to make sure um, that the whole head nose top of the head back of the head and the ears too and i'm looking over here and you'll see her ears go through the images that they're all in view because neuroquant likes that it basically expects that because it starts taking off the skin and the scalp first then it takes off the skull etc it doesn't see all that it can get a little confused so that was good we we, we checked that then we send these images to the neuroquant computer server and in about 10 minutes, it sends us back the colored brain images. And we slice those in a couple planes of section. And we look at, uh, we look at all of the sections that include brain information. So again, that's her left eye, right eyes, as if she's looking at us. And these are her frontal lobes. And there's good differentiation between cortical gray matter, colored red, and the white matter underlying it. Moving toward the back of the brain, that's the back of her eyeballs, moving toward the back of her head. You start to see the lateral ventricles show up we talked about those these are what we call subcortical nuclei still in the temporal lobes there still in the frontal lobes there these are the amygdala which are lower down they're affected in mold they get too big with mold these are the pallidum these small purple blue purple areas enlarged in mold now here comes the hippocampus left and right enlarged in mold as well as a lot of the this cortical gray mat area, a lot of that is enlarged with patients with mold-related illness. She had a little bit of asymmetry in the ventricles you can see there. Was it abnormal? We've got to measure it and test that, might might be. Thalamus is generally enlarged in mold. I'm telling you generally what we see, and then when we get to her report, we'll, we'll find if hers are abnormal or not. This is the cerebellum in the lower back part of the brain. It's connected to the brainstem here. The brainstem is what connects the upper part of the brain to the through the spinal cord down here to the body. Moving again toward the back of the brain. We're about halfway through the brain now. Then going toward the back, we still see the hippocampus. It's a long structure, uh, middle of the cerebellum. Now we're in parietal lobes here as we get further in the back of the brain, heading into the occipital lobes the back of the lateral ventricles the very back of the cerebellum and we look at all those and we look to see that everything's colored right that is that all the brain regions are identified correctly with neuroquant 3.0 which we use now they're almost always identified correctly but maybe one or two percent of the time there'll be some region not identified correctly and then we we won't use that region in any of our further analyses and you should always check on that sometimes they'll set up the mri scanner wrong if they do that then you gotta get them to do it again. And we try very hard to make sure they do it right the first time, but sometimes they don't. We like going to centers we've trained who do it right over and over. And then when they press a button on their MRI scanner, it'll do you know our protocol and they'll, they usually do it right every time. This is just another way of looking at the brain, uh, axial sections, that's their left side of her body, the right. Imagine her lying on a table with her feet coming out of the screen toward us. Okay, so she she passed all of our quality control. So then we took the uh, neuroquant reports that came back. And this is uh, our favorite one, which I mentioned earlier, called the triage brain atrophy report. For Shelley. at this point in time, you can see there's a bunch of blue regions, just one red region. So there appears to be quite a bit of abnormal enlargement. That's the blue regions. The next question is, is there more abnormal enlargement than you'd expect by chance alone? Because to be abnormally large, you have to be, the brain volume region has to be greater than the 95th normative percentile. That's bigger than 95 out of 100 normal people of your same age and sex. So you can see all the numbers in blue, they're all 95 or bigger. Okay, so if that's true, think about it. By chance alone, any one brain region would have a 5% chance being above the 95th percentile by chance alone or you could say that's what you'd expect for a typical normal people normal person so when you've got about 130 regions if five percent of them are going to be abnormally large just in a typical normal that's five percent of 130 that's half of 13 that's about 6.5 that's six or seven regions so you could have six or seven regions that would be in a typical normal but we've got here three, five, eight, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. We've got about twice that many. This is a clearly abnormal pattern. This is not a typical normal. This is not a chance pattern. And plus, they're not distributed randomly. You've got three in a row here. It's all the same structure, cerebellar white matter. Two in a row here, and this one came very close to being abnormally large. Three in a row here. It's a very non-random pattern. This is a clearly abnormal pattern for multiple reasons. Now, the one red region, okay that that could be maybe normal because you could see that in a in a random normal person that's possible. We'll have to maybe think more about that one. You know the next thing we think about is does it match the pattern we know exists in mold related illness because that we know that's what she's got. She didn't have any other problem basically before exposure to the the moldy military housing in this case, and the answer is yes, the cerebellar white matter and gray matter are enlarged. Remember we talked about previous published studies showed abnormally large cerebellum. That's a completely different set of patients and uh, control group. And we see that here uh, in Shelley. And I've seen that in many, many mold patients. I've had uh, over 100 patients with mold-related illness we've done neuroquant evaluations on and NERGAGE. And we see a cerebellar white matter enlargement in particular, probably the most common region I see of all. We don't see much cerebellar gray matter enlargement, to tell you the truth. But Shelley does happen to have that in this case. Then you get a lot of different cortical gray matter regions. Now, in Shoemaker's study and McMahon's study, they looked at this value right here cortical gray matter. For Shelley, it's above average, but in the, well within the normal range. But this cortical gray matter is composed of all of these smaller cortical gray matter regions, or I guess I should say subregions. And so a lot of blue here, that's all an important part of the cortical gray matter here. So in my mind, I think that's likely due to mold-related illness and Shelley, because it's logical. We know in general this structure is big, and these are part of that structure. And then furthermore, she doesn't have any other reason to explain it. It's not normal. She doesn't have any other brain disorder to explain it. Even PTSD, which is probably due in a different mechanism from the mold exposure, the psychological stress, et cetera, that has a very different pattern from this, mostly atrophy, by the way. And so that's, that doesn't match that pattern. So that's part of the differential diagnosis of the volume findings that we do and that everyone should do when they're interpreting these findings. I do wanna mention one thing. NeuroQuant, whenever it does any volume analysis, it automatically sends you as a freebie this extra analysis here called the General Morphometry Report. And at first glance, it looks like it has a lot of useful information. There are multiple brain regions, left-sided volume right-sided volume and they actually measure asymmetry but the limitation of this report is that there's no normal control data there's no comparison of this data to any normal control group so you can't tell if any of these data are normal or abnormal so that leaves a lot to be desired there may be usefulness for this in other settings or maybe for research or things like that but for a practicing physician trying to interpret the data. This is mostly not helpful for me. I I really basically never use this for anything we do and actually probably have never used it because we want to know first and foremost, are the brain regions, is the volume abnormal or not? And I do see this used sometimes in patients and some doctors will say whether these are normal or not. I I would not do that. And I'd be very cautious about that. So that was what we call her um, Time One NeuroQuant report T1 means time one. And then we also did a, a neuro-gauge report on our time one analysis. And this is our own software and our own report we created here. So in our typical report, you know, we say this is our neuro-gauge cross-sectional analysis. That means one point in time. And who referred the patient and date of them, right, et cetera. This is a summary of all the findings, which are um, multiple brain regions, were abnormally large. There's a lot of asymmetry we'll look at below. And the summary is she had a clearly abnormal pattern of brain volumes that provided objective evidence supporting the diagnosis of mold-related illness. The radiologists interpreted this as being completely unremarkable. That is basically normal. That's by far the most common sort of reading that we see. And I, and I would have said the same thing if all I could do was look at the images with a, my question about ventricular asymmetry. We do quality control, looking at a, a lot of technical parameters to make sure that all the images are good quality. And in her case, they're all good. Then we do our asymmetry analyses. We talked about, we take our different brain regions. We look at the left volume, right volume. And the asymmetry tells you how big is the left compared to the right as a percentage. And if it's, then we compare that to the normal control group. And if it's abnormal, it'll get a, a blue color. If, le- if right side is smaller than left, it's going to get a, a blue color. Actually, let me do that again. Well, the ventricles are tricky because, let me not get into the details too much. Let me just tell you that the, the colors mean abnormal volume, okay, uh, abnormal asymmetry, okay? And we could get into details more if you want. But these are happen to be ventricles, members, Spaces in the brain filled with cerebrospinal fluid. Those ventricles, and we did see them uh, kind of quickly passing through, they looked abnormally asymmetric, and this tells you that, yeah, They were 32%, so the left side was 32% smaller than the right side, and that was abnormal at the 2.57 normative percentile. That's around 3%. That's more asymmetric than 97 out of 100 normal people. And the other ventricles had abnormal asymmetry as well. The the pink asymmetry is left smaller than right for brain tissue, and the blue is right smaller than left for um, brain tissue. And you see there's a lot more asymmetry here, a lot more than chance alone. And uh, so I'll say at this point, we did not expect there to be, you know, abnormal asymmetry in patients with mold-related illness. Because why would there? Because you would think the mold toxins or, or related toxins from water damaged buildings that get into your system, whether you breathe them, gets through your skin, mucous membranes, we think they would basically go into, um, sometimes they'd affect the surface directly like the lungs, But in terms of the brain, by the time it got to the brain, it has to go through your blood, basically. And so we figured it would go to both sides of the brain equally and probably have equal effects on both sides of the brain. But we saw patient after patient with a lot of abnormal asymmetry. I would say roughly 50 to 60% of our patients with mold-related illness have a lot of abnormal asymmetry. And then, you know, another 30, 40% don't. So why do they have so much asymmetry? I don't know. One theory we have is that maybe some of them have a history of a a traumatic brain injury way back when, and maybe it was subtle. Maybe they don't even remember it. Maybe it was, you know, a sports concussion that cleared up in a day or two. Maybe they played head contact sports and never had a concussion, but multiple head hits can give you some damage to your brain and your blood brain barrier, which covers your brain and protects your brain. I'm not sure, but it, it, with the TBI theory, that could make you susceptible to mold-related illness, and then years later, you move into a moldy home or workplace, and then the combination puts you over the threshold, and you start getting uh, the mold-related illness effect in your brain. That's just one theory, but we do see it. And here I just summarize the abnormal volume findings from NeuroQuant and NeuroGage. We've already looked at the tables, so this is just a, a narrative report that helps me write the, the next part of the report. Then we do the interpretation about what it means. There were some anatomic correlations with abnormal enlargement of this region, for example, being associated with the abnormal asymmetry in the direction you would expect. We found three regions like that with abnormal enlargement from neuroquant triage report correlated with abnormal asymmetry from the NERGEJ report. You don't always get that, but sometimes you do. And then we discussed the findings with regard to the literature, the two published papers in mold-related illness. And, and I talked to you about that, about the cortical gray matter enlargement in the subregions that Shelley had, and then the cerebellum. And we really strongly think it's probably cerebellar white matter specifically that we can measure now. That cerebellar white matter, by the way, it's, um, this is uh, the cross-section of the cerebellum. And the gray matter is on the surface, cerebellar gray matter. And then below that is the white matter, And it goes, and it's deep in there, so there's, you know, a lot more than you can see in this cross-section. And it's especially that white matter in general, although Shelley did have involvement of both cerebellar gray and white matter. Differential diagnosis for volume for PTSD, we talk about that. And then we correlated uh, the volume problems with a couple symptoms. For example, abnormally large volume of left inferior frontal gyrus, which is right along here. And that correlated with trouble with word-finding ability because there's an important part of your brain here, Broca's area that allows you to produce speech. Then there was uh, also abnormal volume of the same region correlated with executive dysfunction, because a lot of your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is important for executive function, solving problems and making decisions. The occipital region, medial occipital region, medial occipital region, that's all visual areas, and that correlated with some of the visual symptoms that she had. So there you go. That, that's a typical time one report. Then we'll go to the time one, time two report. This is a good level of detail to get into.
0: I did have a question for you while you're navigating, Dr. Ross. Sure. We had a, uh, a fungal geneticist on a while ago, and she talked about how inhalational mycotoxins don't really do much damage to the body. I believe it was. Please correct me if I'm wrong, Eric or Keeley these brain injuries, how are they happening? Is it dermal? Is it people are eating these molar mycotoxins? People are inhaling it? What is causing the damage to the brain?
1: Well, I don't know. Uh, I'll speculate a little bit with the caveat, like I said earlier, that um, I'm not a mold doctor. But from what I've read and learned from my colleagues about that, there there are different kinds of toxins that can get into your body from mold or other microorganisms associated with water damage environments. I have heard some doctors say that there can be basically infectious-type causes, even chronic infectious-type causes in the body. I've heard other doctors dispute that. Then there are a lot of doctors who think there are immune system problems. So maybe you had an infection, and then you fought off the infection, but your immune system was adversely affected, and that's what propagates the symptoms. It's because your immune system's not working correctly now. So, and I don't, I don't know the answers to those, but in either case, there's something that gets into the brain, whether it's, you know, and, and could be, my leading guess would be some immune related problem. There's probably some problem with the blood brain barrier. And so again, the blood brain barrier I mentioned briefly earlier, your blood vessels that go into the brain, they, they branch off smaller and smaller, and the arteries, arteries eventually turn into capillaries which are the smallest blood vessels in your brain or body. And those capillaries then, that's what touches the brain tissue. That's the final step. And in between the capillary blood vessel wall and your brain tissue, there's an extra layer in there uh, formed by the capillaries that creates the blood-brain barrier. The brain is the only organ in the body that has this special barrier. The brain is specially protected unlike any other organ in the body there's a lot of things in your blood that don't cause any problem in your body but they are not allowed in the brain and if they get into the brain they cause irritation and inflammation and so if your blood-brain barrier um, is injured for some reason or if there's something to do with the mold or the immune response to the mold that injures the blood-brain barrier then it all gets into the brain and it starts causing brain problems and the enlargement and the enlargement You know, again, we see only enlargement in mold-related illness, basically, to my knowledge. And maybe with very, very chronic patients whom I pretty much never see, it might be different. Could possibly be atrophy in those cases, that's very speculative. But with the ones I see six months or a year or two or three after injury, we pretty much see enlargement. We don't even know what would cause enlargement, but it could be chronic neuroinflammation, which goes along with the inflammatory ideas I was talking about. But we have another idea, especially, especially from our work with traumatic brain injury, that there could be compensatory hypertrophy. I hypothesize that may occur with the cerebellum, uh, which we also see in large cerebellar white matter and chronic TBI, interestingly. And so the theory with compensatory hypertrophy is that when other brain regions are injured and not working as well, that you may have less injured regions working harder to try to compensate. And we generally know that can happen in the brain. We also know that when certain brain regions work harder, they get bigger, their volume gets bigger. For example, if professional piano players, they have bigger hand regions on their primary motor cortex than average normal people. And professional taxicab drivers, when they memorize the, the roads around London, the, the parts of their brain that memorize it get bigger. When they quit working, those brain regions will shrink back down. Amazingly enough, so compensatory hypertrophy is another possibility. That's a long, fancy way of saying I don't know the answer to your question. <laughs> There's a lot of opportunity for research there.
2: I was wondering if the uh, pattern of enlargement that you see looks like a precursor to empty sella syndrome or Chiari malformation.
1: Not that I know of. Uh, you know, empty sella syndrome, where you have pituitary gland right there. So it's looks like a little it's like a little teeny bean but if you can see the very tip that little brown bean looking thing that hangs down from the hypothalamus and it, it sits in a little cradle a bony cradle called the cella turcica, from the root words meaning turkish saddle anyway and sometimes it's empty or partially empty the pituitary doesn't sit down in there all the way my memory of that this is kind of getting on the edge of what i do and i ready i'll just do this stuff more than me and, and endocrinologist but about half the time that's just a normal variation but a lot of time it can be important uh, as far as i know I, I haven't that wouldn't affect your brain volume that's such a small little area in terms of brain volume that wouldn't have any effect on any of the brain volumes that we're measuring here which are all all of them are a lot bigger than that and we, we just we don't measure that little teeny area down there with nerquan and let's see the other one you mentioned the chiari malformation that's when your cerebellum speaking of cerebellum you're, there, there's a hole in the bottom of your skull called the foramen magnum big hole and your your spinal cord you can see at the very edge of your spinal cord here goes down through that hole and that you can draw a line there and the spinal cord is down here and the brain's up here but sometimes the tip of that cerebellum will poke down through that foramen magnum you know not such a good thing if it just pokes down a little bit doesn't cause any problem but if it pokes down too much it can cause quite a problem. And and so there are different stages of severity of the so-called Chiari uh, malformation. That could possibly affect the measurement of volume of the cerebellum, but that's something a radiologist would pick up. They would see that. And so we would look for that on the radiologist's interpretation. So I always look at the radiologist's interpretation. They can see a lot of things that NeuroQuant doesn't see or measure. Uh, You know, there's a lot more to brain structure than volume. Hopefully that gives you some idea on that. And uh, then I'll go on to the longitudinal analysis. So we did a second MRI on Shelly. This was about a year later. Well, actually, her first one actually was done December 2011. There was a a technical problem with labeling the date because the date we did the neuroquant. Her first one was December 2011. The second one was in December 2012. And it's generally similar pattern. You can see similar brain regions enlarge, although they're not all exactly the same. But what we really want to know is did the volume change from time one to time two over the year period and what you can't do is just eyeball these and decide if something changed volume abnormally fast from time one to time two let's say like uh, anterior cingulate on the right it's not abnormally large there although it's kind of big it is abnormally large here does that mean it enlarged abnormally fast not necessarily you've got to look at you got to compare that change in HER to the change in a normal control group with the mean and standard deviation of the normal control group calculated. You'll see a pattern here. We do that with asymmetry. We do it with longitudinal change with our NURGAGE. So That's what we did with our NURGAGE software. We do two types of longitudinal reports for technical reasons. If you want to ask me why we do more about that, I can tell you. But basically because our normal controls are relatively old, With this analysis, we compare her to our older normal controls, and we can only look for abnormally fast shrinking of the brain. We can't look at abnormally fast enlargement of the brain because the controls are older, and your brain shrinks normally when you get older. She didn't have any abnormalities all the way through here. So this means she didn't have abnormally fast shrinking of the brain to the extent we're able to test it, which is good. You don't want to have abnormally fast shrinking of your brain. We then did a second type of analysis where we were able to adjust the normal control data using the essentially the neuroquant, neuroquant normal control data, which is age-adjusted, along with our own neuro gauge data to estimate the standard deviation. And you need, you need that as well. And here, we have less brain regions, but we can look at abnormally fast enlargement or abnormally fast shrinking, also called atrophy. Now you can see multiple regions in, gray, in green that enlarged abnormally fast over time. This is whole brain, so that's all of your brain tissue. Cortical gray matter got abnormally, large abnormally fast. Remember, that's one of the regions in the two published studies, so there it is longitudinally. And this is a major component of whole brain, by the way. The third ventricle got smaller, probably because the tissue around it was getting bigger, although that didn't quite reach significance there. We got a couple cortical gyral subregions that got bigger. These are part of this region. And so that, and that's an abnormally high number of regions more than you'd expect in a typical normal person. And so, you know, they give us objective evidence that there's continuing enlargement that was uh, matched the pattern known to occur with mold related illness. And it also, you know, raised some concerns that there's still actively ongoing brain volume changes. We like to measure brain volume in our patients over time every year or every couple few years until the, you know, until it stabilizes and is not changing abnormally fast anymore. That way you have a new baseline measure of your brain volume. In case anything happens in the future, you could then compare from before to after. That's our patient example as I wind down here. And so then to kind of summarize and talk about a couple of practical issues, the value of measuring brain volume in our patients with mold-related illness and our other patients is that it provides objective evidence of illness or injury. Objective means you can't v- exaggerate or fake it. In contrast, subjective, you know—you could possibly exaggerate or fake because it's based on a patient's report or the family's report. Like, you know, I don't remember things as well, I have pain, I have headaches, I can't sleep at night, or I'm depressed. These are essentially subjective. They're based on someone's report. And unfortunately, a lot of times our patients, people don't believe them. Sometimes their only family members are not sure they're really, are they really telling the truth. Sometimes their own doctor doesn't believe they're telling the truth. Uh, sometimes, you know, they're, um, they're going for a disability evaluation, which is very important. And, and people evaluate them are skeptical, like, show us proof. Well, I grew up in psychiatry. Almost everything we did was based on subjective report. There, there are almost no blood tests or lab tests or, or brain scans to diagnose general psychiatric disorders. So I'm used to that. I'm comfortable with that. But other people want objective evidence. So okay, we try to get it. And now we have it with brain volume measurement. It's a great way to get objective evidence. If any skeptic took the same MRIs I just showed you today on Shelley, did neuroquant analyses or neurogauge analyses, they will get exactly the same results back. And they're going to be abnormal, clearly abnormal. So that provides vindication for our patients. Uh, their patients are telling the truth and that can be very important for a lot of reasons. And then sometimes it can enhance compliance with treatment, you know, uh, because patients say, well, how can I keep my brain volume from getting worse? Or how can I help it get normal? By the way, that McNann's study, we showed you on mold and brain volume. When patients were treated, their brain volume tended to get normalized. It tended to shrink back down toward normal values. So there is good hope there. But beyond that, I'll say that the volume measurement doesn't really change treatment or rehabilitation. I'm, I would still recommend the same medications or rehabilitation therapies from my point of view, at least as a brain doctor. And finally, some practical issues. A patient who wants to get their brain volume measured can go to their local MRI center. They got to set up the MRI scanner exactly right. We tell them how to do it. It's not really hard. They just have to know that they need to do it and do it exactly this way. And then they get the brain images, which is all done locally, wherever you live in the country or even outside of the country. A lot of other countries do this. Then you can send them to us here in the Richmond, Virginia area, where we can do the neuroquant analyses and the neurogauge analyses and reports. So to just do the neuroquant and neurogauge work, the patient doesn't have to travel here to Virginia, not necessarily. Sometimes they do if they want me to you know, do a fuller evaluation, et cetera. But we can do just the volume analyses um, without them having to travel here. To finish up, mold-related illness causes neuropsychiatric symptoms and abnormal brain volume. These volume abnormalities can be readily detected with our brain volume measurement techniques in, in the clinic. They're practical for use, and they can often provide objective evidence supporting the diagnosis of mold-related illness.
0: Yeah, so just to confirm, you are you the only physician in the nation utilizing NeuroGage?
1: We're the only ones that actually do the NeuroGage, and one day we might you know, license it out or something. We're not doing that yet, but we have other physicians who refer patients to us. Then we do the NeuroGage analyses, and then we'll re- send the results to the, the patient's doctor, and they can discuss it with the patient. We can join the patient and their doctor and discuss it with them if they like.
0: Fantastic. And maybe I should ask this question before that one, but could you tell us maybe a little bit about the mechanisms behind NeuroGage?
1: Yeah, we have um, our own normal control group with 80 normals, uh, 40 men and 40 women. They're relatively old, which is a limitation. So they range in, range in age from sorry, 60 to 72. And we combine that with, in some cases, with some analyses with the NeuroQuant normal control database. The NeuroQuant database has 4,000 normal controls throughout the lifespan. And so, for example, with the asymmetry analyses, we use our normal control group. For a female patient like Shelly, for example, we compare her to our 40 normal women. And with asymmetry, there doesn't seem to be changes with asymmetry as you get up through your 60s and early 70s, probably because both sides of your brain uh, atrophy due to aging at the same time, because both sides of your brain age at the same rate. Uh, and then for um, the longitudinal analyses that we do with NeuroGage, we talked about we do two types. And one type, we use our normal controls and only look at atrophy. And the other longitudinal analysis, we combine our normals with the NeuroQuant normals, best of both worlds, where we can look at abnormal enlargement or atrophy. And they're age adjusted. And so basically, the theme, which I mentioned a couple times, what we do, we take our normals. And you measure any given brain structure, like hippocampus, and you'll get a bell curve. Most people are near the middle, some are out on the tail ends. And you calculate the mean, which is the center of the bell curve. Then you calculate the standard deviation, which is the width of the bell curve. And that's the critically important information to determine your cutoffs at the fifth and 95th percentiles. For example, the fifth percentile is 1.64 standard deviations below the mean. And that number we put into our uh, algorithms, which are mostly done in uh, a series of Excel spreadsheets that takes the volume data and processes it and compares it to the normals. And it outputs at the other end the table of the results that we put in our word report to create our
2: reports. So
1: that's how we do it.
2: Are are you seeing any striking differences between mold-related illness and post-viral fatigue syndromes? I don't know. Uh,
1: I've done very few... Post-viral fatigue syndromes, and it's been years since I've done any. I'd be very interested in doing that, and so I, I don't know the answer to that, Eric. I'm sorry.
0: So um, you've characterized a patient as mold illness. They have X, Y, Z symptoms, but I'm just taking it a step further. Do these patients usually report like personality changes, anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, and does that reflect within their brain scans as they that they actually do have a traumatic brain injury that can be contributing to these different adverse psychiatric behaviors and feelings?
1: Okay. Um, you know, my patients with mold related illness, when we do the entire, a full evaluation, so we do here, we do mainly three things. One is a regular clinical evaluation. We spend all day with the initial patient, look at all the records, interview them, test them, examine them. Then we do forensic evaluations, people involved with lawsuits, sometimes on our own patients. Then we do the brain volume measurement. Sometimes on our own patients, sometimes on other patients who just come here just for that. That's, that's what we do. If I do the full evaluation, whether it's cl- clinical or forensic, and I'll have rich data, then as part of that, we always take a pretty careful history for a history of traumatic brain injury. Because otherwise, most other doctors, they don't, to tell you the truth, for various reasons. Not a criticism, it's for some good reasons. You can't do everything, et cetera. Um, but hey, you know, I'm a brain injury doctor, so that's what we do. And in doing that with our patients with motor-related illness, I'd say about um, maybe a third of them have a history of traumatic brain injury. Yeah, maybe 25% to a third. But most of them don't, but some of them do. So in, in ones with a lot of asymmetry that we we're talking about, and I was, you know, hypothesizing possible relationship to history of TBI, traumatic brain injury, a lot of those will have a history of TBI, but a lot of them won't. So I'm not i'm not sure how it all connects together right now did that answer the main part of your question
0: yeah in a way i was just curious to see like how many patients that you serve that you know have been characterized as mold illness actually have major psychiatric issues like anxiety depression suicide because i remember when i was going through my mold illness and i know keely can also back me up on this i had a lot of weird suicidal thoughts and i was always depressed or anxious and that's usually not who I am as a person. I'm very optimistic and fun and loving and whatever. But I felt like when I was in the thick of my exposure, my brain just went haywire and my emotions and everything along with it too. So
1: oh, oh yeah. Absolutely. And uh the patients that come to us with mold-related illness, they all have multiple psychiatric or neuropsychiatric symptoms or syndromes. You know, you know, if they didn't, they wouldn't be coming to uh a neuropsychiatry clinic, right? So it's, it's not a random sample by long shot. From what I read and, and understand in general, about half of patients with mold-related illness will have a, a lot of neuropsychiatric or brain problems. So what, what you experience, Alicia, is very common. I see that all the time. And it's a lot of brain symptoms usually, not, not just a couple. We see a lot of cognitive problems, poor concentration, poor attention, poor short-term memory executive dysfunction, slow thoughts. We see um, slow movements or incoordinated movements. We see depression, anxiety, irritability. We see trouble sleeping, fatigue, and sleepiness during the day. We see um, problems with the visual and auditory se- systems, including impaired filtering. Your brain filters a lot of uh, sensory information. And so, you know, lights or other things will bother their eyes or sounds different kind of sounds will bother their ears or can have trouble hearing certain kind of like people talking in noisy rooms they'll have trouble hearing them and things like that because your brain's not filtering out the the background noise as well as it usually does so yeah we see a lot of that unfortunately and you mentioned the depression i think the depression can come in a couple major ways one is uh primarily on a biological level the parts of your brain that control mood regulate mood are affected and then that gives you the abnormal mood depression or suicidal thoughts another mechanism is the psychological and social stress you have because you're sick you feel terrible it's hard to get along with your loved ones or they're getting you know burnt out, helping you out and and then that that would be depressing to anybody so both ways you can get depressed
2: the uh the other major illness that we're all worried about is lyme disease do you have any data on lyme disease I've
1: almost never done that. Several years ago, I, I had, uh, I, I used to use Dr. Shoemaker. He thought he saw a pattern and he had talked about it in one of his talks. And I would use that to try to distinguish lime from mold because sometimes we have people come with that question. I never saw that data published in a peer-reviewed study and um, I had not gone out and looked for that specifically in a few years. But, but Dr. Shoemaker thought there's a, a slightly different pattern and this is a, a document that I keep to help me write my nerve gauge reports and I have brain disorders under here with the, with the pattern of brain volumes that we see. For mold, I'll have abnormal volumes we see, etc. And for Lyme, and it's been a few years, but it's still in there. He thought it was characterized by a little bit different pattern. Atrophy of whole brain, we see the opposite in mold. We see enlargement forebrain and probably whole brain enlargement of pallidum that's same as mold and enlargement of hippocampus that's same as mold so uh, it's only slightly different because it's uh, whole brain atrophy instead of enlargement and that's the last i've seen on it eric i haven't seen anything else on it but that would be exactly the type of thing i would love to research or have other people research and people there's a ton of research on brain volume and various brain disorders you know things like lyme and mold get get less attention and research than than other things unfortunately but theoretically we could then start seeing the patterns of brain volume abnormality that would distinguish these different disorders that would could be very helpful and a lot of people are thinking along those lines i can tell you that
0: are you familiar with dr mark gordon no okay so he he's a physician that has been actually treating military personnel with tbi injuries from combat with like a set protocol. And I was just interested to know if like once you diagnose your patients, who are they going back to, to get like a protocol or, or to get treatment from, is it all shoemaker certified doctors that you work alongside with?
1: A lot of them are shoemaker certified. Some of them are not, but they're all, they're all mold doctors. So they all go back to their mold doctor for the primary mold treatment, you know, like whether it's going to be, cholesteramine, or all the many other mold treatments that that should get closer to the root of the problem. That's probably more important than what I could do. But if they want some treatment from me, there's a lot I can try to do. Uh, We do a lot with medications where we're treating the symptoms. And we we try to get to the root of the problem as much as we can. But with mold-related illness, we're probably not getting down to the lower level that a mold doctor can get to. But sometimes we can still help. Sometimes we can clean up their medications a little bit if there's the neuropsychiatric medicines maybe don't make sense or maybe causing a side effect that people didn't notice will, will sometimes can help with that. There are also from a neuropsychiatric and brain injury medicine perspective. There are rehab therapies that can help. For example, you know, if you have short term memory or concentration problems, speech therapists can do cognitive rehabilitation to practice your memory and your attention that can help, you know, I might order an overnight sleep study to look at the sleep disorders, or I might send you to a neuro-optometrist who are the best with the vision and eye movement problems that can come with acquired brain injury and uh, and so on.
2: There's been a lot of talk about neuroplasticity and brain retraining. Do you see brain retraining as uh, having potential for any of these brain injuries?
1: Well, let me make sure I understand what you mean by brain retraining. To me, that sounds like the types of what I call rehabilitation therapies that we do with our brain injured patients. For example, what I was just saying, that that, uh, the cognitive rehabilitation that a speech therapist does, would that fall under the heading of brain retraining or does brain retraining? Not
2: not really. The uh, brain retrainers have kind of conflated uh, several different concepts here. And they're talking about generating positive feelings and reducing uh, fight or flight maladaptive fear responses.
1: You know, what I know is with post traumatic stress disorder, for example, there are very good techniques of cognitive desensitization, including eye movement desensitization and respo- uh, response therapy, EMDR. And that is basically, in my mind, would be a brain retraining type of thing that would reduce your uh, sensitivity to emotionally traumatic stimuli. And we recommend that basically in all of our PTSD patients. It's very, very good therapy there 's a lot of kinds of what I call rehab therapies that other people might call brain retraining you know of, of different types you know there 's even things like neurofeedback right You put the electrodes on the scalp, hook it to a computer, and with only your brain waves, you can control things that happens on the computer. but you do that to adjust your own brain waves now that you have the feedback and that can reduce a lot of neuropsychiatric symptoms. I have more with that with traumatic brain injury than with mold, but it it certainly could be tried with
2: mold. It's very low risk. It's not zero risk, but it's very low risk, lower risk than medications typically. My point is that you need to keep the pathology of traumatic brain injury, actual chemical or infectious insult separate from brain retraining in order to study them. But the brain retrainers are constantly insisting that they're inseparable, that uh, the mind-body connection is so Intimate that one can't study the one without the other.
1: Yeah, well, I probably need to know what type of brain training technique and what kind of patient with what kind of disorder we're talking about to be able to think about that more.
0: I'm curious. So you you diagnose patients in the midst of their mold exposure, and then they go back to their mold doctors, they get their protocol. Do you see any success in the patients that come back for a rescan after they've done their treatment protocol from their mold doctor?
1: Uh, you know, the vast majority of what I've done are uh, a single cross-sectional study, and I always recommend follow-up MRIs, and we were able to do them in Shelley, for example. But I haven't done enough to know if treatment, especially effective treatment, results in improvement brain volume, that is reduction of the abnormal enlargement. So I don't have enough experience on that. I would love to do that, but we haven't been able to get patients or the referring doctors to do that yet. Enough for me to comment on it. I've seen, I I remember several patients where they get more enlargement over time, like Shelly. That's the one thing I remember. And then some of them don't change much. And then sometimes I'm not sure exactly how the mold treatment's going from the mold doctor. Sometimes I try to get records and sometimes I have it, sometimes I don't. I'm doing only the brain volume analysis i don't often i don't have a whole lot of other records
0: yeah that would be really interesting to see the effectiveness of these treatments and if you know it has caused the brain to, to calm down and not become so enlarged
1: yeah i think it would be fantastic i mean 10 years ago i i wasn't sure that treatment could do much for reversing brain structural problems but now i I'm pretty sure at least it can, and you know, that's what McMahon found in his small study. And I would love to see that in um, a lot of our patients. And then that would pr- also provide further vindication that our patients are being truthful and that we doctors know what we're talking about because if they get clinically better and their brain volume normalizes. Then other people can see, okay, there must be something to this. They're not all oh, just making it up.
2: For a long time, it was assumed that uh, neurotoxicity resulted in demyelination have you seen evidence for this
1: no you know um with the brain volume measurement we don't directly measure myelin we measure cerebellar white matter that's the two regions with white matter that have axons that are covered with myelin so that's the closest we get which is kind of not close enough to really say anything about demyelination, demyelination. there's diffusion inte- diffusion tensor imaging dti excellent technique, MRI technique also, structural MRI, that is sensitive to white matter damage. So that wouldn't be directly measuring myelin, but it would be closer, definitely closer to it than what we do with volume. And I don't know if there's been any studies done with DTI and mold-related illness. I've not gone out and researched it. The, The best way to do TTI probably is quantitative DTI, where you measure all these things. Certainly with traumatic brain injury, measuring the the DTI signals is better than just looking at the images. And I don't do other types of studies where we would directly measure the myelin, and I'm not aware of the literature on that more generally. You know, if it affected myelin though, we don't see much abnormal volume of the cerebral white matter. So um, you might think that you would if you're having big effects on myelin because cerebral white matter has, it's all covered with myelin. These are axons all covered with myelin. A lot of the cerebral white matter is myelin.
2: Well, Professor Leighton Barnden of Australia was doing extremely um, high Tesla uh, MRI scans on patients with myelotic encephalomyelitis and unleashed with an amazing thing that I'd never heard before. He says he actually observes thickening of the myelin sheath. And he um, suspects, just uh, hypothesized, that perhaps the, the volume of all this swelling might result in some of the increased the enlargement that we're observing in these people, the uh, increased cranial pressures, and that his hypothesis is that something is inhibiting the um, neural impulses and the thickening of the myelin is a compensatory reaction to try to facilitate the nervous impulse.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And how did he measure the myelin? Do you
2: remember? Uh, Yeah, he described it. Apparently, he's got an extremely sophisticated MRI machine. It's, um, you know, many, many times more powerful than what normal universities have access to. Okay, maybe
1: like a seven Tesla magnet or something like that.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yes, you can see things like microscopic. It gets down to microscopic detail probably or close to Yeah, and
2: I was just amazed by this because this was the exact opposite of what everybody was predicting they would see.
1: Yeah. Well, that's certainly interesting. And it makes me wonder if uh, some of the enlargement we see in some of these other patients that I've been talking about might be some compensatory enlargement on a different organizational level. So, you know, like I was saying, the cerebellum might help out when the cortical gray matter gets injured. It could be more a a cellular or subcellular basis with the myelin trying to get thicker to help out the injured axons or neurons. So that's an interesting thought.
2: Yeah, Professor Ron Davis of Stanford uh, was a speaker at the 2018 Emerge Conference in uh, Australia. And there was a presentation on this this evidence, and I believe it's still available online. And if not, uh, Professor Davis could certainly get you in touch with this uh, Professor Leighton Barnden.
1: Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be interesting.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ross, um, just for joining us today, and we're just curious How and how much does it cost to get a NeuroQuant and how can our audience work with you to get their brains assessed?
1: Well, at least a couple major ways to come to me. Like I said, you could come here directly as a patient, but I'll just focus on if you just want your brain volume measured. And to do that, you need a doctor, your treating doctor to refer you to us. And then we can, once we get that, we can work with you to set up the MRI and the brain volume analysis. The MRI usually is covered for patients who have insurance when it's an assessment of brain injury or brain disease. But that depends on your insurance, of course. The second MRI is covered not as often, but still often. And and the cost of MRI is between you and the MRI center and your insurance. So if it's not covered, if insurance doesn't cover it, an MRI can cost two to $5,000 or more. It's quite variable.
0: Dr. David Ross and his team's fee structure has currently changed since we recorded this podcast, and it makes neuroquant and neurogauge analyses more affordable for patients. At the end of our podcast, originally, he said the cost would be $2,500. On their new system, it will now cost $290 for the basic neuroquant and neurogauge analyses, and the patient could also choose a physician to interpret the results, or they can choose Dr. David Ross and his team. In that case, there would be an additional charge depending on the complexity of the case upon consultation. Thank you everyone for joining us today. It was a wonderful conversation learning about the brain and how a traumatic brain injury can manifest after an exposure. Thank you again Shelly for offering up your information for us to analyze and look through. If you guys are interested in working with Dr. Ross and his team or if you're also interested as a radiologist interning with Dr. Ross, please check out his website in our show notes linked below. Also like, share, comment on our content. Feel free to subscribe. We are on all podcasting channels. Check out our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to keep this podcast rolling. Thank you again, and we'll see you all next time.